Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We've been in a series this Advent season called Truly God and Truly Man. Truly God and Truly Man, we are rejoicing in the arrival of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the church has confessed for 2,000 years that Jesus is fully, truly God, and he is fully, truly man. Last week, to catch you up to speed, if you're new here, maybe just joining us for the first time this holiday season, uh, we did look at the, what I called controversial yet crucial doctrine of Jesus's deity, truly God. Jesus is truly, fully God. But this week, we are going to look at the second part of our series title. Not only is Jesus truly, fully God, but he is also truly, fully man. Jesus is a human. Excuse me, the eternal God took on flesh and became a man. If the deity, the godness of Christ, is controversial and crucial, then here's what I want to, here's how I want to frame the humanity of Christ. It is controversial, yes, but it's also comforting. The doctrine of Jesus' humanity is arguably one of the greatest doctrines of comfort in the Christian faith. It means that God has not stood far off from any one of us, but he has entered into our broken, messed up, sin-ridden world as a man. Jesus, the eternal God, took on human flesh and he became a man. This is the central and distinct claim of the Christian faith. And I want to share a brief story with you that I think is going to help illustrate the comforting truth of Christ's humanity. It's a story I read some years ago from Pastor Tim Keller, and he shares the story of a pastor who once spoke on the theme of the wounds of God, the wounds of God. He was at a university campus in Australia, and this pastor taught the distinctly Christian belief that Jesus is truly God and truly man, and this God-man, Jesus Christ, actually suffered on the cross. He died for our sin. Well, after the talk, he opened the floor for questions, and a Muslim man took the floor. And here's what the Muslim man said in response to this pastor's teaching. He explained how preposterous the claim was that the creator of the universe should be subjected to the forces of his own creation, that he would have to eat, sleep, and even die on a cross. Preposterous, unthinkable, blasphemous. Well, the pastor, he says he had no response. This Muslim man's argument was not only intelligent and logical, but was also civil. He made a genuine claim and the pastor didn't know how to respond. In fact, he would say what this Muslim man said about Christ was true. The eternal God entered into space-time. He lived among us, ate, slept, and yes, he even died a humiliating death. So here's what the pastor said in response. Thank you for making the uniqueness of the Christian claim so clear. What the Muslim denounces as blasphemy, the Christian holds as precious. God has wounds. You feel the weight of that? 
This is what we're talking about when we speak of the humanity of Jesus Christ. This story captures the essence of Christ's humanity because while remaining fully God, Jesus added a full, genuine human nature. The eternal God dwelt among us as a man. And you know what this means? This means the God-man, Jesus Christ, suffered with us. He suffered with us. We don't have a God who is so transcendent and far off that he has no clue what it's like to be human. We can never go to God and say, you don't understand, because certainly he does. No one was more falsely accused than Christ. No one was a subject of more abuse and misidentification than Christ. Yet this is the central claim of the Christian faith, the eternal God became a man. He understands what it's like to live as a human. And if I could summarize the doctrine of Christ's humanity into one phrase, here it is. Jesus is in every way like us, yet without sin. Jesus is in every way like us, yet without sin. So I want to read John chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 14. These have kind of been the central verses of our claim and our series of truly God and truly man. And we're going to read, once again, we've been reading it the last few weeks, a snippet from the definition of Chalcedon. This was a council in AD 451, 1,500 years ago, where 500 pastors in the known world gathered together to clarify what does the Bible say about the person of Jesus. So let's look at this. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And here's the definition of Chalcedon. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. As we did last week, looking at the deity of Christ, we're now going to look at the humanity of Christ. And instead of just camping out in one scripture, we're going to look at many different scriptures throughout the New Testament. So I want to show you that the claim that Jesus was not only fully, truly God, but also fully, truly human in every way like us, is crystal clear and it's completely consistent throughout the New Testament. Jesus was truly God and truly man. We're going to look at several texts in the life of the Gospels. These are, think of them as like the four biographies of Jesus' life. And then we're going to look at the Apostle Paul, one section of scripture from him in the book of Philippians. And um, fair warning, we do have a lot of scripture to cover today. Um, well over 15 verses, so buckle in. That's okay, though, I think, because um, you didn't come here to hear me speak, I hope. Um, you came here to hear what God has to say, and so we're going to look at the text today and establish this foundation for the humanity of Jesus Christ. So let's begin in the first verse of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The first page in the New Testament, we have a statement of Jesus' true Humanity. Understand the context of Matthew's gospel. It's the first book in your New Testament because it serves as a kind of bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. 
the last book of your Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And it was written 400 years before Matthew wrote about Jesus, before the coming of Jesus. And so 400 years, there was silence from God. God's people, they lived and they studied what was written in the Hebrew Bible, but they had no new revelation of God for 400 years. They're called the silent years. And now Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, 400 years of silence, God breaks the silence, and here's how he does it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In this one verse, we have the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament history. And here's the claim. Jesus had human descent. This almost goes without saying, but not quite. Jesus was born. The word genealogy here literally means to be born or to have an existence. And this is important. This is, I would say, crucial for our faith because Jesus is not just a figment of religious imagination. Jesus is not just a mythological being that makes us feel good and says good things. God became a man. The eternal God entered space-time. His name was Jesus. He has a family tree, just like you and me. He had parents. In fact, he had descendants. The first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1 goes through his family tree all the way back to Abraham. Yes, Jesus existed. He had a family tree. How real was Jesus? How human was he? Well, one of Jesus' apostles, his name was John, he wrote in the book of 1 John that Jesus is someone who, as apostles, we heard, we saw him, and we even touched him. That's how real he was. Jesus really existed. He had human descent. But next, I want to look at how Jesus had and embraced the full limitations of his human nature. He embraced the full limitations of his humanity. I have a list behind me. First, we see that Jesus got hungry. In Matthew chapter 4, this was right before Jesus would begin his three-year public ministry and immediately after his baptism. We're told in Matthew 4 that Jesus went out to the wilderness. The Spirit led him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we're told he was hungry, verse 2, because for 40 days and 40 nights he had eaten no food. He was fasting. He was spending undivided attention with his father. And so he was hungry. He was also limited because he got thirsty. In John chapter 19, the picture is Jesus is hanging from the cross. The most excruciating, physically excruciating death that the Roman Empire could devise. And we're told that Jesus hanged on the cross for six hours. And toward 3 p.m., toward the end of his life, he simply said, John 19, 28, I thirst. 
I thirst. And so they gave him sour wine to drink. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he also dealt with exhaustion. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus traveling from the northern region of Palestine, that's the modern-day Arabian Peninsula, traveling from Galilee of the north down to Judea in the south, and he passed through a country, Samaria. This is about, this would have been roughly a 30-mile journey in the desert heat. And we're told in John chapter 4 that he was so wearied from his journey that he sat down next to the well and had to have something to drink. This is practical. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was tired, he had to sleep. Another human limitation I want to show you is actually Jesus had limited knowledge. And I want to spend some time here because even that statement to some of you might be a little bit counterintuitive, if not maybe a little blasphemous. But Jesus did, in fact, have limited knowledge. Limited knowledge. We see it as Jesus is speaking in the Gospel of Mark. He's speaking of the end times. He's telling his disciples what to expect when he comes back a second time to establish his earthly kingdom for all to see. And hear this, Mark chapter 13, verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows. Angels don't know. The Son, Jesus, does not even know, only the Father. So we have to ask the question, if Jesus is truly eternally God, how can he not know something? How can he not know? Let me give you three considerations. Let me give you three considerations. And you may remember um, week one I said this series is going to have a swimming kind of in the depths of the theological swimming pool. We're about to go pretty deep here. Um, but let me explain to you the, the significance of this, that Jesus did not know something. First consideration, God knows all things. God knows all things. Theologians talk about this with a word called omniscience, all-knowing. In fact, David, King David in the Old Testament, would write Psalm 139 about God's all-knowing nature. He knows all things. David would say, Lord, you know when I rise and when I lie down. Before I even speak a word, you know it altogether. He would say, God, search me and know me because God searches hearts, even the innermost parts of a man. God knows all things. He is omniscient. We need to accept that as a premise. Second consideration Jesus, being God while on earth, accepted the limitations of humanity. He accepted the limitations of humanity. So it's proper to speak of Jesus not knowing something as saying he certainly could have known he was God, but he chose not to know because he took on a human nature with all of its limitations in every way like us, yet without sin. Perhaps for an analogy, um, if the fastest man in the world were told to enter a three-legged race with an average Joe, that would inevitably slow him down. It would limit him. But we know that that does not impugn on his nature because 
this is the fastest man in the world. You simply untie him from this guy and he's going to go. In the same way, this analogy, when we speak of Jesus, when he became a man, he did not lessen his divinity. He knew all things. He sustained all things. Yet he accepted the limitations of his humanity so that in every way he could be like us, yet be without sin. And thirdly, we're talking about the human and the divine nature of Christ. When we speak of this, we speak of there being a unity of Christ's two natures. Here's what I mean by that. Jesus of Nazareth was one man. He had two natures, God and man. You and me, we we have one nature. We're humans. We're humans. But when we speak of the unity of his natures, that means he had a full human nature, a full divine nature, and they were united in the one person. That's why when we speak of Jesus, we don't speak of him as them, but him, one person. Maybe watching the cartoons growing up, you would see the person with the struggle and they would have the the devil on one shoulder. You know, I'm talking about the angel on the other. The devil would say, you should steal that cookie. The angel would say, you're better than that. And there'd be this inner turmoil. We don't see that in Jesus. His divine nature was not in conflict with his humanity. You're tired. No, you're not. You're hungry. No, you're not. We don't see that. Jesus was a completely united person with two natures, truly God, truly man. Some of you are thinking, uh, my brain hurts. Amen. Um, (laughs) These are the depths of Christian theology, but I want you to understand the importance of this. This is not just an intellectual exercise. This is our Savior. This is what Scripture provides us with to understand the infinite complexity of Jesus Christ and how rich that is. Lastly, the last of Jesus' human limitations that we're going to speak of today anyway, is that Jesus died. He was born, Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Yes, Jesus died. This is a central claim to our faith, is it not? Crucified, buried, and risen. Matthew 27.50 says, after six hours of hanging on the cross, he bowed his head, and yield to his spirit. So we have to ask, did God, the eternal God, die on that Friday on the cross? No. God cannot and did not die. The God-man died that Friday. His human nature died that Friday. Let me explain to you just the logic of this. One theologian says it this way, if the divine God died that Friday, the whole world would have passed out of existence. You need to understand that in God, he upholds all things. Acts chapter 17, verse 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. If God passes out of existence, we're done. We're done. But we know that's not the case. The eternal God certainly did not die, but the God-man, Jesus Christ, died genuinely on that Friday. He had human limitations even to the point of death. 
I want to show you next that Jesus had human emotions. We see first in Matthew chapter 15 that Jesus had great compassion. He had great compassion. We're told that after crowds, thousands of people were with him for three days, hearing his teaching, watching him heal the sick. We're told that Jesus stopped and noticed. We're told that he had compassion on the crowds. The word compassion there is the strongest word available to the New Testament writers to convey strong emotion, gut-wrenching burden for those around him. Christ was not a stoic. He was a compassionate man. We see next that he experienced sadness. Even if you don't have a church background, you're probably familiar with the story of Lazarus and how in John chapter 11, verse 35, his dear friend Lazarus died. And we're told that Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He dealt with his emotions as a man, and he wept at the death of his dear friend. We see Jesus exercise perfect anger in John chapter 2, where he goes into the house of God, the temple, essentially the church for the Jewish religion, and he became overcome with fury and anger because the religious leaders were running a corrupt system. They were charging the poor more than that they could afford for opportunity to receive forgiveness from God through the sacrificial system. They were pocketing all the profit. It was a terribly corrupt system. And so we're told that Jesus drives them out. He flips over tables. And we have a hard time understanding this because when we're angry, we always have some sort of self-serving, sinful motive. Um, someone says something to us, we get angry, we want to get back at them. Jesus' anger, untainted by sin, perfectly sinless. It was a perfectly righteous and just anger. And lastly, we see that Jesus even endured sorrow. Sorrowful to the point of death. Hours before his crucifixion, he engaged in weeping and sorrow for the impending suffering he would have to endure. So we see really the full range of Jesus' human emotions. Why? Because he was truly a man. And I mentioned earlier that this is a doctrine of great comfort. Because when we pray to our God, we're not asking him, we're not asking him to try and understand something that he cannot. But God in Jesus Christ has in fact suffered with us. God in Jesus Christ does in fact know what it means to be unjustly treated. He knows what it's like to be poor. He knows what it's like to be reviled, slandered. He knows what it's like to go to his own people and have them not recognize him but despise him. Look, if you need to hear this today, hear me. God sees you. Maybe all you can do is just utter a prayer. God, where are you? Do you understand and see me? 
And friend, let me tell you, the answer to that is always yes, because God became a man in Jesus Christ. He's been there. He sees you. We're told that we have a great high priest, Jesus, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. A doctrine of great comfort. I want to look at uh, one last scripture here. Um, We're going to look at the witness of the Apostle Paul. We're going to look at his letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, Paul makes an astonishing claim that Jesus was equal with God, but born in the likeness of men. Truly God and truly man. Philippians is one of Paul's 13 New Testament letters. And he writes this letter, by the way, while in prison. It's one of his prison letters. And if you've ever read Philippians, you know that it's one of the happiest books of the Bible. So much joy and praise and encouragement from this little book. So while in prison, he writes an encouraging letter to a church he helped plant in the ancient city of Philippi. And he encourages them to press on, keep the unity of the faith, serve one another. And when he encourages them to serve one another, he looks back at the life of Jesus and says, consider the example of Christ, who though he was rich became poor. That's where we pick up in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. I want to break this down and walk through it. This is a massive claim to the humanity of Christ and its significance for us. So in verse 6, he says, Christ was first in the form of God. He was in the form of God. This word form here most basically means the whole set of characteristics that make something what it is. The whole set of characteristics that make something what it is. In other words, Paul is saying Jesus is God. He was in the form of God. This was who he was. He goes on to say that Jesus did not, verse 6, count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So don't hear what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that Jesus could not grasp equality with God because he was not equal with God. No, what does he say? Look at it. He says, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Meaning, Jesus was fully equal with God, yet accepted the limitations of of his humanity while on earth. He chose not to grasp the full benefits of his eternal godness. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself. He poured something out when he became a man. What did he empty himself of? We certainly know it wasn't of his godness, of his deity. If Jesus would have emptied himself of his deity, the whole world would have ceased to exist. He's the eternal God. He cannot, could not have emptied himself of his deity, but he certainly did empty himself of the riches in heaven. John chapter 17, verse 5, and 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, we're told that Jesus, though he was rich for our sake, became poor. We're told that all of creation worshiped Jesus for all of eternity. Before the creation of the world, we have perfect fellowship of the eternal God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Yet the eternal God takes on a human flesh, empties himself of his divine eternal riches, and he in fact becomes a man. He emptied himself. 
of heaven's riches. What did he do when he emptied himself? Next part of verse 7. He took the form of a servant. The word form. This is the same word we saw in verse 6. The whole set of characteristics that makes something what it is. Hear what this says. Jesus, when he became a man, did not simply say, well, I got 30 years on this planet, may as well do some serving. No, what Paul is saying is, for all of eternity, God has existed fundamentally as a servant for the people he created. Wow. When Jesus served on earth, he's simply showing us what the Father has always been like. He took the form of a servant. This is his very nature. And now the last part of verse 7. Being born in the likeness of men. In other words, in every way, Jesus was like us. He had a body. He had blood. He appeared as a man. He had human limitations, human descent, a human family tree. He had human emotions. Born in the likeness of men. Verse 8, being found in human form. So he's born in the likeness of men, and now he's found in human form. In other words, Paul is saying, if you just looked at Jesus, you wouldn't see some elevated spiritual person. You would see a man. Truly God veiled in ordinary human flesh, in every way like us. In fact, he was so ordinary a man to the eye that his own people, the people he grew up with, did not recognize him. And look with this, look at this, the last part of verse 8. Found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Exalted as the eternal God, verse 6, in the very form of God, yet for our sake became poor, born of a virgin, the no-name village of Nazareth. He grew up. And not only that, but being falsely accused, he was obedient to the point of death under the hand of the Romans, even death on a cross. When we speak of the humanity of Christ, it's a precious truth that Jesus was born in a virgin and laying in a manger, yes. But do you understand what Jesus gave up as the eternal God to take on our humanity and dwell among this broken, messed up world. Let me just say this. There are days where like, I don't even want to go out of my house because it's such a broken world out there. I don't even want to turn on the news. And I'm just a man. Like I was created for, for living here and shining God's light. Can you imagine the eternal God taking on humanity for 33 years, living among this messed up, broken world? That's what our God did in Jesus Christ, lived among us. By way of conclusion, I want to practically, quickly give you four reasons the humanity of Christ matters. 
Four reasons the humanity of Christ matters. First, it matters because Jesus can be our mediator. A mediator is someone that stands between two parties. And for us, as unholy people, we need a mediator to stand between us and God. We need someone to represent us to God. Jesus does that. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He can be our mediator because he is fully human. Next, Jesus can be our substitute. Beautiful claim of the Christian faith, right, is that Jesus died for you. Amen. But did you know that Jesus also lived for you? Galatians 4 tells us that Jesus became a man born of a virgin under the law. Every person without exception is born under the law, meaning God, infinitely holy, has a righteous and holy and perfect standard. All of us fall short. We need someone who does not to reconcile us to God. Jesus did that because he lived sinlessly under the law in our place. He died as our substitute, the death we should have died on the cross for our sins. Thirdly, Jesus is acquainted with our suffering. When we pray to God, we can never say, you don't understand. He understands. Jesus Christ, fully human, entered into our suffering. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he was in every way tempted like we were yet without sin, Hebrews chapter 4. And lastly, we need to understand that Jesus is the measure of a true human. We are all created in the image of God. That's true universally as human beings, and it's a wonderful gift. But because of sin, that image of God, that reflection of who God is in us is marred. Not lost, but marred. It's tainted. Meaning you can look at someone, believer or non-believer, you can say, I, I see the beauty of God's creative work in you. I, I see that. But all of us being tainted by sin, we're not the true standard of humanity. Only Jesus, untainted by sin, undefiled, set apart, perfect relationship with the Father. Jesus is the measure of a true human. It's a measure to which we should strive to attain. Jesus is in every way yet uh, like us, yet without sin, our sinless substitute, tempted, persecuted, suffered, yet without sin. Jesus is truly God, and he's truly man. This is a doctrine of great comfort. So if you're burdened today, go to Jesus Christ. Truly God, he's able to forgive your sin. Truly man, he's a shepherd and a counselor for you to bear your burden in your place. Let's consider this truth as we close in prayer together.